Welcome to Web of Tomorrow, a podcast about the web and the people who build it. I'm Adam Garrett-Harris, and this week I've got a special guest. I'm Safiya Abdallah. I am a blogger, writer, and software engineer. Cool. So first off, one of the reasons why I'm interviewing you is we started a new podcast. That's an announcement that I've been talking about for a little bit on Web of Tomorrow. So it's, it's me and you and two others, and I'll be interviewing them in upcoming episodes. The podcast is called Book Bites, and it's where the four of us read a book in advance. We're not reading the book on air. We've read it in advance, and we're discussing it. Then we hopefully bring on the author and talk with them. So that's been a lot of fun. Super fun podcast. I was really interested in being involved with it because I am currently a senior at university. I'm actually done with college tomorrow, which is exciting and a little nerve wracking. And I've been thinking a lot. Thanks. I've been thinking a lot about how I can continue to structure my learning as a developer and software engineer outside having, you know, something like courses to do and homework assignments and assigned readings and such. And I thought that getting on a book club style podcast would be a great way to A, motivate myself to read on a regular basis, uh, B, start to actively think about what I'm reading in preparation for knowing that I'm going to have to talk about it with people, and C, to get some perspectives on the stuff I'm reading from folks who've been working in the industry a lot longer than me and who kind of know what's up in the software world. So that's why I wanted to get involved with it. It's all about uh, learning and being a diligent reader for me. So how have you felt about your assigned readings in school or your, your assignments? Do they feel relevant? Do they feel forced? Do you have to, you have to make yourself do it? Or are you, are you motivated to work on that kind of stuff? So I would say for the classes that are specifically computer science or technology courses, sometimes it does feel a little forced. Mostly because for so many of the classes, they're using these like classic textbooks. I'm putting classic in air quotes that have been written in like the late 80s or early 90s and every professor at every university uses them for their course and they're kind of, they're like one way of teaching and it isn't really approachable and doesn't fit for me. I personally prefer to learn from visual material. So if it is like a technical textbook, it's hard for me to get into depending on like how deeply technical it is. And so I found myself struggling to just like sit down and read an assigned reading, especially because I think a lot of times when you're at a university, the professor assigns readings and the order in which you read things by how they conceptualize the concept. So, you know, if a professor thinks about operating systems in this way and they think that the foundations build up like this, they'll assign readings to match their perspective. And while that might be, you know, pretty good way of doing it because they've been researching this stuff for a while and they've been teaching it for a while, sometimes the way that a professor assigns readings is not necessarily in the order or the fashion that you would read something on your own. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it is I just am kind of like a stubborn person and I don't like doing what I'm told, so I just won't do anything if it's assigned. and prefer to kind of have a little bit more flexibility about what I can read and how I can read it and what I can do with it. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of times it makes more sense to read it in the order that most interests you and you can dig in deeper in certain places where you're interested and skip over other places and maybe come back to it later. Like operating, you mentioned operating systems class. 
that sounds like one where you could completely skip that and not miss anything unless you're super interested in operating systems. Yeah, we ended up bouncing around that class quite a bit. You know, we you know talk about virtual memory for a little bit and then jump onto threads and then talk about file systems. And that was just one person's perspective of teaching it. I think the interesting things about books is that they're like a very linear medium. Um, it can be very much so in the case where you're reading like a novel where there's like a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you can't really read it out of order. Otherwise, you just, it probably wouldn't be that fun. And then there are less linear style books where you can kind of pick and choose chapters. For example, the Apprenticeship Patterns book that we looked at in the first couple of episodes of the Book Bites podcast was the kind of textbook that didn't enforce its linearity, so you can kind of read it as you wanted to and branch out topics. I think this is really fun to do with books sometimes. Yeah, I I always feel like I need to read the book in order all the way through, and I'm trying to let go of that idea. Do you want to hear realize... a really horrifying story? Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's not horrifying. It's just silly when I think about it. When I was in elementary school, I used to love to read books. Um, and the only place I could really get like a full stock of books was at the public library that was next to my house. And sometimes I would start to read a series. For example, um, A Series of Unfortunate Events was a book series that I liked to read. Another book series was Protector of the Small. But since it was a public library, sometimes I would read like book one of a series and then go out to check out book two and somebody had already checked it out. I'm like, darn it, I really want to read more in this like storyline. So I'd actually check out book three and read that and then go back <laughs> and read book two. <laughs> Everyone's just like cringing in their seats as they're listening to this. But I like read a series of unfortunate events out of order. I did read a few Harry Potter books out of order. Um, no way. I did. I was about to say, that's one that you would not want to do that with. I did. Um, I think it might have been like the fourth and the third books that I swapped in my read. Um, wow. And for me, it was kind of fun because I would try and fill in how I imagined the author would have written the book I missed or you know, just like take a little bit more freedom with the way I interpreted the story, but really came out of this limitation that I was like reading my books from a public library. And sometimes, you know, book two would not be available and I just really wanted to read more. So I just settled with book three and, and deal with it. That's so actually yes, pretty cool. I am, cha I like I am chaotic good. <laughs> yeah. Do you play D&D? I do not. I've just seen that meme around the internet. I didn't even realize it was related to D&D. I suppose that I just got my nerd cred rejected. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> no, yeah, but that was that's how I perceived my rather, rather whimsical reading habits from when I was a uh, preteen. So let's let's back up a little bit and talk about, we were talking about you're getting a computer science degree. Is that right? Computer science? Yes. Okay. And let's back up and see how did you get into coding to begin with? Oh, gosh, this is such a hard question to answer because... There were like different points where I got into different things in technology. Like I very much so grew up with like a computer in the house. When my family moved to America, that was like one of our first purchases was a Dell Dimension 2400 PC. And what, what year was that? This was probably like 2003. Okay. I was, I think around seven years old. Was that like a big purchase for your family? It was, it was huge. In hindsight, 
it's kind of miraculous that I don't know how we managed to get a hold of that. It must have been a miracle. But we ended up with this computer in my household. And that's when I just started tinkering around with it. You know, I used to play a lot of Flash games. I think that's how most people my age started with computers is like Flash games and Neopets. And I think the big moment for me was when I started to realize that a computer was not just a tool you use to like write up your papers or play games. It was a tool that you could actually tell to do things. And when I discovered that along multiple avenues, like the first was when I started to try and design themes for my Neopets account and I had to learn HTML and CSS. What, what kind of account? Neopets account. Um, Neopets. Yeah. I should explain what it is since I think it's also a, a, maybe a little bit of a generational thing. Neopets was a online website where you basically had like pets that you would take care of and they were just like fictional creatures. Like there was a unicorn and one that looked like a monkey and one that looked like a frog. And you would just kind of like take care of your pets, feed them, battle them with each other. Um, and you had a profile on the website and you could create themes for your profile. Okay, cool. Using HTML and CSS. And my friends and I would kind of have like competitions or would just try to like show off and make the coolest profiles. So I had to learn um, HTML and CSS to build out my own personalized profile and get it looking how I wanted. And that was the first time I realized, wow, you can actually tell a computer how things should appear on a screen. And there were other instances shortly after starting to poke around with HTML and CSS, I really got into photoshopping things. I uh. forget what the name of the technique or art form is, but there's um, kind of a set of Photoshop concepts where you would bring together different images and sort of cut and filter them to make a holistic scene. So for example, one I remember was like you would grab a picture of a girl um like kind of sitting up in bed and grab a backdrop of a forest and grab a picture of butterfly wings and you would kind of splice and filter and morph them so that you had this image that looked like a fairy in a forest and it was pretty realistic and I like to do that um so just like make fun art like that but photoshop was expensive so um one of the things that I would try and do is get like terrible hacked versions of Photoshop from like random forum sites with like lots of Russian text that I didn't understand. And like, it'd be the page where there's like four download buttons and you have to figure out which one was real to get the yeah. download. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, through that, I started learning about how people could modify different settings on their machine. In that case, it was the Windows registry to like extend trials or just to make their computer do things that weren't immediately available in the settings page. And I remember discovering like the Windows registry and how you could edit that and just being completely blown away because it was like, hey, there's this tool that you use every day and there's like a whole layer behind it. And so that's kind of what kept me interested in computers between being like 10 and 12. It's just, you know, wanting to kind of just tangentially discovering that, hey, maybe there's more to software than just using it. Like there's secret settings and there's HTML and CSS and there's like ways to build things. But it wasn't, I would say I officially started programming with like, quote, a Turing complete language 
when I was 13. It was the summer before high school. And I was really into like binge watching documentaries because I was a total dork. And I found a series online and it was about the history of computing. And it talked about the invention of the analytical engine that Charles Babbage built, which is like the first early prototype of a computational machine. Well, not the first, but one of the first. And it talked about the ENIAC and how computers came about during the world wars as a way to help calculate bomb trajectories and help crack codes. And I learned about just like everything related to technology and the documentary series ended talking about the 90s and a lot of the startups that were coming around then. And they talked about companies like Yahoo and Excite and all of the super interesting things that were happening in the 90s. And one of the companies they talked about was Google and how it was basically these two PhD students who built a search engine just while they were in school. And that blew my mind that these were just, in my mind, they were normal people. They were just smart people who were like me. And they built all of these great businesses and made this great change using like a computer and their brain. And that just completely blew my mind. And I decided that what I wanted to do was build my own search engine company. And I started teaching myself things like Python and started diving into machine learning topics and AI topics all because I wanted to build a search engine company. And it's very obvious at that point, I was just doing this on my own. I would Google for books. I downloaded a lot of like the illegal PDFs from O'Reilly authors. So hmm. I, every time I meet someone from O'Reilly, I'm like, I'm really sorry, 14 year old me pirated so many of your books. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, it wasn't like I could like go up to my parents and be all like, hi, can you spend hundreds of dollars for this like new hobby that I'm into now? Right. Yeah. So I just would download books. I'd watch videos. I'd look at tutorials and I taught myself a lot of programming just on my own which meant that I kind of became a very independent learner and I'm very good now at learning how to use a new software library or framework by myself without a lot of help. But it also means that I learned a lot of bad stuff that I had to unlearn later. That was a long story, but that's basically how I got into it. It was just kind of prior to becoming a teenager, there were all these like signals that were being presented to me that, hey, a machine or a computer is something that you can manipulate. And it can actually bend to your will. And then there was that moment when I was 13 where I completely realized that all a computer was was a machine that just did what people told it to do. And anyone can tell it to do anything. And the rest is history. I was lucky enough to go to a high school that offered computer science classes. So I got the opportunity to take things like introduction to computer hardware in high school and a data structures course in high school. Wow. Yeah, and that kind of solidified and structured my learning, and I decided to like go on and do it in college. So what do you think motivated your parents to spend all this money on a computer in the 90s when computers didn't really do that much? Not everyone had them in their homes. What motivated them? Yeah, so I honestly think it was just because we had moved to America, and it was kind of a big deal, and there was like a lot of optimism and excitement in our family about all of the like great and wonderful things that could happen. So naturally, um, my family brought a computer. Also, I should clarify that my dad is 
or holds a degree in mechanical engineering. So he is a technical person. And he probably at that point, sorry, I should clarify, my dad had learned and done Fortran programming while he was at university. So he kind of was more like technical than the average parent. So I think when he brought our family a computer, he like knew the tool that he was purchasing. And yeah, that computer stuck around our family for a while because we brought it in 2003 and I programmed on it from then until I started a little after I started college or high school. So it lasted about eight years with our family. Nice. So did you learn any programming from your dad? I did not. Like I said, it was like a completely independent experience for me. My dad worked long hours and my mom was in college. So I, there was a lot of time where I would just like be done with my homework after coming back from school and I would just like sit on the computer and fiddle around and I'd fiddle around on the weekends. I think they were partly, con- my mother especially was concerned about it because I would just spend so much time on the computer and she had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. She's like, your eyes are going to get, <laughs> your eyes are going to get bad. But now that I have a computer science degree and, and a job, she feels much better about those decisions that I made. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was very much me just like messing around on a computer for a long time. So I, I find it really interesting that you you watch this documentary and you saw the Google guys who are PhD students make a company and your conclusion is, hey, they're just normal people, so anyone can do this. <laughs> yeah, I think... I related to them because at that point, when I was in fourth grade, I got put into like the gifted track at my school. And I did a lot of gifted programs in like elementary school and middle school. And the high school I went to was like a college preparatory school. So I always felt like one of the the dorky smart kids. And the way that I related to the founders of Google was that they were people who were comfortable with their intelligence and their quote-unquote dorkiness. Um, Because at that point in my life, I wasn't comfortable with being the smart, gifted kid. I got like, you know, like the cliche story of getting bullied a lot for it and just being teased because I was the kid who like liked to do their math homework and enjoyed taking math tests and like like science class and for me, it was refreshing to see people who I could tell were like that, who also liked science and math, and they just like fully embraced it. And they were comfortable with being that and actually made it work for them. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar moment where I was watching TV and there was a little a little blurb between commercials that said, hey, did you know that Bill Gates was 12 years old when he wrote his first program? And I was like, what? I'm 12. <laughs> yeah. I can write a program. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something so inspiring about the courage of youth. Like when you're young, um, you just like don't care and you don't see any limits to anything and you're a big dreamer and you're hungry. And I think it's cool when you enable kids and you give them the chance to just run with their wildest ideas because they're so, they're much less inhibited than adults. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, speaking of wild ideas, talk about this uh, startup that you run. Oh, super fun. How did, uh, how did that get started? I decided to do it and then it just happened, which is how things usually get started. How they continue is a different story. Um, ah. <laughs> yes. Um, so the startup company or the, the product that I'm focused on is called Zarf. The tagline is it's a marketplace for the written word. So it's a space where authors can independently publish short form work. 
um, short form is considered something that would take you between 30 minutes to two hours to read. So it's sort of content you could read in a single sitting. And I started working on it in mid-June of 2017, so a little under a year ago now. Okay, so you were in college at the time? Yeah, I was. It was between my junior year of college and my senior year of college. And I've always had interest in starting a technology business, like ever since I saw that documentary about how the founders of Google started Google and kind of grew it and kept it going. I've always been excited about that. And I've had other like startup businesses that I have started, but kind of failed and fell on their face. Um, I learned a lot, but you know, they're not around now. So it did not continue. But I started working on Zarf in mid-June and it's evolved so much since then. It originally started off as a place where you could subscribe to authors and get regular content from them, sort of like a patreon slash newsletter service that ended up not working out so in january of 2018 i launched it as a place where you could just buy things for like a single like one-time access to content instead of subscriptions and i've been working on growing it then i got into a residency program here in chicago with the startup so i'm you know, being mentored and coached by people who are kind of invested in me succeeding and having it be a successful business. And I've been just side hustling on it. During the summer between mid-June and September, I would come after work. I worked as a software engineering intern during the summer. I'd come after work and work on it in the evenings and also on weekends. Once school started, I would work on it in between classes and whenever I could here and there. Um, And yeah, it's been a really interesting learning experience. Um, I could like go on all day about the things I learned um, working on Zarf, but I think The one way in which I'm more motivated about the succeeding and more excited about the succeeding is the fact that through the residency program and through some of like the existing customers I have, I feel like more people want to see me succeed. And the fact that other people are invested in it and my success kind of pushes me to keep working on it because I am a solo founder. I'm also bootstrapped. I did get some money from the Shuttleworth Foundation to work on this project. And I also did get some funding from the residency program to work on this project. But it's nowhere near the millions of dollars that you might see like funded startups get. So are you still, is your, is your new employer cool with you working on this still? And are they giving you time to work on it or is it still uh, just on the side? Yeah. So I start work in about a month. Um, I assume that by the time this podcast episode is released, I'd probably already be working. Oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) But yeah, my employer is okay with me working on it in the side. It is a product. Zarf is a product that does not interfere or compete in any way with the product I'm helping build in my day job. I also learned there's a couple of people at the company I work at who also have similar side hustles or indie products that they've built, which is kind of cool. So it's nice to have other people in the same company who are kind of doing the same thing. Did you get that written into your contract when you signed your employment agreement that this specific thing is okay? Or is it already a part of their contract that side projects are okay? I think it's already a part of their contract. Yeah. Um, That as long as it doesn't compete with the, you know, that standard boilerplate text they have where it's like as long as you're not selling 
products that to our customers or anything like that, um, you're fine. Yeah. So since I work for a consulting firm, pretty much anything is conflicting with them. Oh so no. I I have to get specific projects approved. Oh shucks. Yeah. I work at like a very at a company building a product for like a very niche market segment. So and it's completely far removed from me. They like. I work part-time or full-time building a product in the restaurant industry and Zarf is in the kind of writing creative work industry. So yeah, my, my plan is to do what I did during my summer internship and kind of work on Zarf nights and weekends. It's probably going to be interesting to balance, but I made it work for three months, so I'm sure I can make it work for longer. Yeah, so I'm actually curious about what your normal day-to-day schedule kind of looks like. Or look like when you're going to school, work on the work, working on the startup as well. Oh yeah, it's my schedule's pretty, pretty interesting. I guess the closest thing to like a traditional software engineer's full time schedule would be when I worked during the summer and was working on Zarf. And in that case, I generally wake up around like six thirty. Yeah, and I would like work on Zarf a little bit, and then I would go into the office for work. I'd work until five, and then come home. And then I'd work on Zarf till like midnight and then I'd go to sleep. That wasn't healthy. Don't do that if you're listening to this podcast. Don't do not do what I did this summer and make that mistake. <laughs> so that's like six and a half hours of sleep? Yeah, it was not a good idea. It was six and a half hours of sleep. And it was also, I think the harder thing about it was not that, like the amount of sleep that I was getting. Because I think six and a half is actually pretty fine for me. It was the fact that I was writing code for 12 hours a day. 12 plus hours a day and writing code is like very exhausting it hurts your head yeah um, it really is it is i i think yeah sometimes you know i come home from a day in the office and i'm just like oh my brain is fried i don't want to do this and i i would say i made some very unhealthy choices that summer i was not exercising or working out i was eating out a ton i was not getting enough sleep i was always stressed out whether it was about you know, doing a good job at my internship or helping make sure that Zarf is built well. Um, and my schedule was inconsistent. Sometimes I'd sleep three hours and then I'd like try and make up for it the next day by sleeping like eight hours. It was just a mess. And I regret doing that. It taught me a very valuable lesson um, in a very hard way. So after that summer, I was like, you know what? It is possible to, you know, work a full-time job or be a student full-time and work on the stream of yours, but you need to be more healthy about it. And that's when I started enforcing like certain requirements on myself. Like I try and work out six times a day and then do some sort of like yoga or a lower intensity workout. Six times a week? Sorry, six six times times a week, week, not six times a day. That would be intense. (laughs) That's like (laughs) full-time bodybuilder status. That would be a constraint for sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, So yes, I try to work out, you know, six times a week. Um, I try to get seven hours of sleep a day, whether it's, um, I think we were talking about this earlier. Um, I would, you know, whether it's, if I sleep six and a half at night, I make sure to take a nap midday. And I find out that's actually been so helpful. This was like the breakthrough thing that I learned is that midday naps are the greatest thing ever because they like help counteract that afternoon slump you go through. So I've, I've embraced naps and just like not being afraid to sleep or not feeling that if I'm sleeping and in like a near comatose state in bed, that, that that's not a bad thing. So does that kind of make your day feel like 
two separate days you you wake up in the afternoon feeling a bit refreshed for for the second half of the day yeah and usually when I have class what I'll do is I'll like go to my classes and then I'll be done depending on the day around 3 p.m or around 5 p.m and I'll come in for a quick nap and then I'll wake up and start working on stuff one of the things that I've really sort of embraced after that chaotic summer where I was just being overworking myself and being very mean to myself is I've just embraced consistency. Um, I found that, like I mentioned earlier, like working out six times a week at around the same time helps just give me this kind of like inner balance and makes me feel less stressed and calm and ready to like dedicate myself to the mental effort of working like writing code 10 plus hours a day. Um, I've also started doing things like I publish a blog post every Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. And knowing that I have to sit down on Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday, got that right, um, just to sit down and write something has also helped kind of add structure to my life and make my mind and spirit less chaotic. And so I guess <laughs> it's a terrible way of answering your question. I've just like started to embrace consistency more and more and anytime I can figure out hey I can start off my day and I can like make myself a healthy smoothie every day I try and like commit to that task um I would say after that I'm gonna go for a run and I commit to that task and then after that I'm gonna write for 15 minutes and I commit to that task just giving my body that rhythm and giving it like a sense of expectation like when I wake up I expect to do something so I'm like more committed to doing it when it happens I don't know how to describe it I'm probably not doing a good job but just like adding consistency to my schedule has helped me feel like a more balanced person no yeah I think I think you're doing a good job of explaining it so yeah it seems like a lot of times those daily routines they don't seem super important. So when really big, urgent, important things come up, those are the first things to go. Yeah. Um, I don't think coding an extra few hours is as productive as making sure you're in a good rhythm. Yeah, definitely. And the other interesting thing I realized is that when you're running a software product as a solo technical founder, code should actually be what you spend the least amount of time on. And I learned this the very hard way when I started my residency program. Because, you know, as you might figure from this podcast, I love to write code. I could sit all day in my computer, not all day, but for a considerably long amount of time, just like exploring different frameworks and tools and building things. But that's not what it takes to run a successful business. So when I started my residency program, they started, they sat down with me for my intro interview and they just completely grilled me on sales and marketing. Like, what was my sales pipeline? What was my marketing pipeline? What was my ad spend? All of the stuff that I had no clue about because all I had been spending time doing was writing code and fixing bugs and stuff. And that's when I realized, like, before you write code, you have to actually have people you know are going to use it and make you writing that code worthwhile, at least if you're doing it in, like, a business context. And so now I actually find myself when I'm working on Zarf, I'm actually spending not a ton of time coding. I'm mostly like doing sales, like cold emailing authors or doing marketing, like trying to generate like media kits and ad displays and stuff like that. And I don't spend a ton of time coding. I think I should start to integrate more time coding into my schedule just because I'm at that point where... I know what things I need to improve in the product now that I've talked to potential and existing customers. But that was like a big revelation for me too, is 
like if I'm coming home after work or after class and I'm spending four hours coding on Zarf every day, then I'm not running the business right because that's not what I should be doing. I should be like actually going out and talking to people and getting them to buy and invest in Zarf. Yeah, and it seems like not every website or app needs to be constantly worked on. You know, it seems like you can get to a point where it's it's good for a while. Or you might you might have gone off in the completely wrong direction if you didn't talk to people. Yeah, and I think that's what was it with Zark is I like went in a completely wrong direction because I wasn't talking to people. And I started talking to people and I was like, oh my gosh, I should have gone down this road um, and I had to change. And yeah, I think the hardest part about that is it started off being really fun because all I was doing was building an app from scratch and it was super joyous. And I was like, yay, I'm a coder, coding up all the things all day. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, you have to go out and talk to people about this thing you invested a lot of energy into and dealing with rejection from cold calls or like a newsletter that I send out for marketing purposes has a less than stellar click rate or conversion rate. Like I take that stuff very personally. I'm working on not being that person, but I consider Zarf my baby. So whenever I sense that somebody doesn't like it as much as me or people are like turned off or not as excited about it, I'm like, no, why do you not like my baby? So yeah, I just it's such a huge personal investment for me. And it takes a lot of emotional energy. Yeah. Yeah, you said coding was exhausting, but that sounds exhausting. It does. It's like, I'm not going to say it's raising a child because that's, I'm sure raising a child is way harder. Um, but I think it's whenever you make something, whether you like write your own book or you build your own app or you open your own store. Yeah. You, you wouldn't know anything about writing a book, would you? <laughs> no, I would not. <laughs> But the way I describe it to people is, for me, it's very hard to separate me from Zarf. So when, you know, cold sales lead doesn't pan out, it feels like I'm being personally rejected because I've sort of become the product because I'm the only person working on it. I don't know if this is making sense to anyone, but it feels like I am Zarf and Zarf is me. So when anything wrong happens with Zarf, it's like, ah, I must be yeah. wrong. Yeah. So it's like you have to learn to disassociate. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard because I feel like having a strong association with it is part of what makes me like super dedicated to it, but it can also backfire and end up harming me sometimes. Yeah. Because I, I feel like when you're working for a company and it's not you're not personally invested in it, you're you're helping someone else succeed. You you may or may not feel a strong association with a company, but uh, I think generally. You don't feel that. You go home and think about other things. Yeah. Um, but I find myself like thinking about Zark when I'm on the treadmill or on the train or I'll like see some like billboard out somewhere and I'll be like, oh, that's a good thing to do for Zark or something like that. It's just constantly on my mind. So what, what do you do with all these thoughts that are coming in like to do items or ideas? So another thing that I learned in my residency program is that write that stuff down but filter most of it out because I find that for me personally and I think this might vary for individuals those like in the moment ideas are very creative and like spontaneous but sometimes they're not 
rooted in cold hard facts or statistics. So whenever I get like an idea in the, on the train, I'll write it down and then I'll like go home and think about it. And I'll be like, well, based on, you know, this sales figure that I know and the fact that this condition exists in the industry, this sounds like it'll be a really exciting thing to do, but it's actually not. So I, I might just be a total downer and like just constantly like not pursuing interesting, exciting things, but you kind of have to like discipline your mind when it starts to snap into too many ideas. Yeah. No, yeah, I think the extreme form of that is when you have a dream and in the dream you have a really good idea, which is, of course, not rooted in reality at all. Yeah. And rarely <laughs> is that actually a good idea. Yes. Uh, I, I'm sure everyone listening and myself included is thinking about that dream they had with that one idea that was totally <laughs> out there. Usually I can't remember it, but I know it was a good idea. Yeah, I've heard of people who say the like put things like put paper and pen by their bedside and write those things out like the moment they wake up or I guess when they wake up in the middle of the night or something. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm sure like there's great ideas in there and I'm sure that works for some people, but mine would be like so incoherent and nonsensical like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Google Analytics Bunny, what is that? Um <laughs> So you've got a, a post on productivity and you said you write things down on paper. So mm -hmm. talk a little about, about that. Why do you use paper as a productivity tool? Um, probably just so I have an excuse to go to the office supply store, to be honest, and spend too much money on pens and paper. Okay. What is your favorite pen? Okay. So I have a couple of different ones that I like. Um, let me grab a few. So the first that I like is the... Uniball Onyx Fine Tip Pen. I just like it because it feels super smooth. I use it in the red. I tend to like writing in really bold, vivid colors. I find that blues and blacks are a bit bleh. So I will write in things like purple and green and red. So you use like a gel ink pens usually? Yeah, so I, I also like the Pilot Precise V5 is a good pen. None of these are fancy pens. Um, I'm not like super fancy. And then also the Pilot G2 pens. I use the 0.38 point. Yeah. For me, the big thing with pens is, I think it's just like a personal preference thing. But for me, it's just like, how does, how good does it make my handwriting look? Because I kind of have very, very narrow letters. Um, so my S's are very narrow. My R's are quite narrow. And I find myself using very fine tip pens because of my narrow handwriting. And I just try and find things that work with my handwriting. Okay, nice. Yeah, I've got one pen that's just way too fine tip for me. It's the Intergel 0.3 millimeter. Oh, I love a good 0.3 millimeter. And I have a moleskin. I have the, what is that? I think it's the 5 by 8 dimension. I only write on gridded paper, or I guess the professional term for it is square-lined paper. Okay. And that's entirely because... When I'm writing my to-do lists, I like to make the little check boxes. So if I'm using squared paper, I can like make a perfect little box off the squares in the paper. Everyone listening is like, Safia, you're so weird and <laughs> random, but that's No, just... I, I use the dot grid paper. Okay. Yeah. That's a similar thing where you kind of can make perfect shapes. And it's less restrictive than lines across. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I also like square because you can write horizontally and vertically so you can like flip the paper if you want and like do charts and tables and stuff yeah for a while i think in high school i used wonderlist a lot to manage my to-dos 
Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is about writing that kind of like forces you to slow down and think a little bit about what it is you're writing. So I find that when I use tools like Wonderlist or Google Task or like the 50 million other things that exist, um, I end up writing a lot of nonsense in my to-do list, like things I don't really need to do, but like we were talking about earlier, like came into my mind in the middle of the day and so I quickly typed it out. But it probably wasn't something that needed to occupy my to-do list. And also I find that paper is an empty canvas. I can write and create my to-do list in any way that I like. If I feel like using circles instead of squares for the checklist, one day I could do that. If I feel like color coding it in different ways, I can do that. No app, or I guess that's my challenge to any listeners, I don't think there's an app out there that can be as flexible as the things you can draw on paper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, paper is the killer app. It is. It is the killer app. Um, that should just be my next startup. I'll just sell notebooks and call it the paper. killer app. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, I, I most importantly, I like the satisfaction that comes with crossing something out on a piece of paper. It feels very satisfying. And I do this with like another random fact i'm training for a run right now and so i have my training schedule printed out on paper and what i'll do is once i've completed the like required training session for the day like maybe today i had to do a three mile run or run for 35 minutes i will like take a highlighter and color that box out on the calendar and that's like very satisfying for me i think it's it's good to give yourself like tactile responses and rewards for achievements and for me coloring a box in with a highlighter on my training calendar or checking a checkbox with a really bright colored pen on my to-do list is like very nice tactile feedback for you've been a good girl Safia go get yourself some ice cream cool so when it's written out on paper like that how do you manage what you do on a day-to-day basis or what has the most priority or time-specific things. Okay, so um, I'm flipping through my little moleskin to see how I've been doing this. So I think I wrote about this in the blog post that you uh, referenced is I time box things. So for example, I'm looking at a to-do list from February 2nd and I have finish editing blog post, 20 minutes. Um, And then I have work on marketing newsletter, 30 minutes. So I'll do things like that. I'll like time box things and adjust the amount of time I think it'll take me based on how high priority an item it is and like how soon the due date is and how long I think it'll take. So for example, if I'm working on a project for a class and it's, you know, like one of those big programming projects that like is generally they give you like two weeks to do or something. I will say, okay, I'm going to spend 45 minutes working on it every day until I get it done. And then as I get closer to the due date and realize that there's a lot more C code that you have to write to implement threads, um, I'll like increase the amount of time that I spend on it. So I kind of play it by ear and the demands of the day or week. The other thing I kind of like about having to do things on paper is it limits how far in advance I can plan my days. So generally when I like, I used to be the kind of person who like, I'd like try and plan out my entire week, like neurotically. And I found it was, yeah, I found it was the kind of thing where planning was becoming a chore, like a task in and of itself. And I was like, Sophia, this is no way to live your life. So I started just taking it two days at a time. I 
will write out a to-do list for like today. And then if something comes up and I realize, oh, that's high priority. If it's like something super quick, like I need to send an email to somebody to check in with them, I'll like do it that moment. But if it's not, I'll say, okay, I could do that tomorrow. And so I just keep, keep, I live life on a two day window, which is so freeing. Then like things come up randomly in my calendar and it's not so freeing. So do you ever write something on your to-do list and then just to mark it off? Uh, yes, I did that today. <laughs> um, actually, one thing I started to do is um, we record the Book Bites podcast every other Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Time. I've actually started to put it as a to-do list item so I can feel like extra good about myself and get those endorphins from checking it off my to-do list. So I actually have our interview on my to-do list as like a thing to do, even though it's more an event than it is a task. Yeah, I, I put events on my to-do list as well. I like how you time box it because I think that does two things. One is it it limits the amount of time you spend on tasks that could take up an infinite amount of time, right? If you're if you're writing a blog post, you could spend as much time on it as you want yeah. and never publish. But then two, it helps you realize there's a finite number of things you can do in a day. It does. That's a great point. I had not thought of it that way. For example, for like the blog post, I don't think I've spent more than two and a half hours writing a blog post that I published. That's because they're like, I don't know, I've gotten to the point where it's like I've written probably about a lot. Mm, a lot. I'm having trouble counting them. Probably like in the 30s, um, 30 blog posts since the year started, the year being 2018, um, just like doing three a week. Um, and I find that the more I write, the better I get at writing. And that was kind of my goal with doing that is I wanted to become a better writer um, and also introduce consistency to my schedule. So yeah, that's that's how I do my to-do list and stuff. Yeah, well, I like how... You set a very achievable goal, which is write three blog posts a week in order to achieve becoming a better writer. Because if your goal is just be to become a better writer, how does that happen? You know? Yeah, that's true. It relates to my favorite quote of all time that I always try and like sneak in every time I do anything. And the quote is, it goes something like this, um, little drops of water, tiny grains of sand make up the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. I mention it a lot in my talks and occasionally in some of my blog posts. And that's just like a very defining quote for me. I've, I've had it memorized since I was like 11 years old. And for me, it just kind of like expresses the fact that breaking things down into little chunks and consistently building and growing things is how you like make mountains and oceans. Um, and it, it affects my philosophy on a lot of things, including how I, you know, make my to-do list and how I'm like working on my blog and stuff like that and how I wrote the book that I published as well. Nice. So um, also in that productivity post, you said sometimes you're motivated by haters. And recently, I, I think you experienced quite a bit of hate. Oh, um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was so terrible. Um, I wrote a blog post about a technical concept. It was one of those things where I like try and read code to figure out how something works and I'll admit that it wasn't like the best blog post in the world. And I think this was kind of the thing that people reading it might have missed. It was it was good because it got a lot of attention and a lot of people shared it. But sometimes when you're trying to like do something consistently, you're not necessarily going to do it consistently well every time. 
And there were a couple of things that were off about that blog post. And maybe I'm just focusing on the bad things. Anyway, it was a blog post. It got a lot of attention. It made it on the front page of Hacker News. And that was kind of one thing. And dealing with the feedback on Hacker News was kind of rough just because the tone in Hacker News is kind of like the brutally honest, harsh developer tone. I think some people listening might know what I'm talking about, but it's that tone that's got a little bit of condescension and it it's trying to teach you something, but it also makes you feel bad at the same time. So you're resistant to the learning because the tone is, it's like talking down at you. Well, I feel like a lot of times on Hacker News, they're not talking to the author. That's true. They're... If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's always this shift when if you're not very popular on the internet, maybe a few people are commenting. Those mm-hmm. people are talking to you, the author. Yeah. And then once you get really big, they start stop talking to you and they start talking about you. I, that's a great way to phrase it. And it kind of extended to the next thing that happened, which is from Hacker News, somebody posted about the blog post on 8chan, which is truly the world's darkest corner of the internet. Like, just Google what 8chan is and, like, you'll read the news on it. And it's sort of like 4chan, um, where they've got, like, sub forums for certain topics and somebody posted about the blog post on their tech sub forum but their interest in it was not the content it was the fact that the person writing it was an immigrant and a lot of the criticism that they were writing was just there's like a lot of racism and sexism and xenophobia and what was really uncomfortable about it was like scrolling through and seeing people finding my Instagram and looking through my Instagram and making comments about the way I looked and the things they wanted to do to me because of the way I looked. Um, People like going into my LinkedIn and like looking at where I worked and making comments about that. People like trying to find out where I, it was, it was super uncomfortable because it, it wasn't like, People were criticizing the content of the blog post. They were making comments and threats about me as a person because of who I was. And I got super scared because I've received like kind of mean criticism or, you know, criticism conveyed in an unconstructive way for some of the stuff I've done. And I'm okay with that. Like it hurts for like the first couple of minutes after you read it, but then I get over it. But for me, it was very different when I saw that something I had written on my blog and like published and just like shared out there and I didn't think much of it spiraled out of control and ended up being in this like really dark corner of the internet where people were like making racist comments about me just like stalking me on the internet and all of this outrageous stuff and that really scared me because it was the first time that I felt attacked for who I was not what I had done and I know people like attribute different degrees of seriousness to that stuff. Like ultimately they're like internet trolls. They have nothing better to do but like make immigrants or people of color, women feel uncomfortable for the things, for just like existing and being people and doing things they love. But that really scared me. I was like, oh my gosh, what? I like made my Instagram private and removed my personal information from it. I took down my LinkedIn. I put my twitter on private for a little bit and they kind of got a kick out of that i think like they were following me on all of those things for like a week and a half 
And when they saw that I had like locked everything down, they were like, ha ha ha, aren't we super fun? We like scared the little person into like locking down their social media accounts. And I eventually like made everything public after I felt like their energy died down. But like the really interesting thing about a site like 8chan that I learned from tracking the conversation on my posts that they were having and some of the things I was saying was that there's not a ton of people using those websites, thank goodness. It is a dark corner of the web, but there's not a lot of people using that dark corner. I think there were like at most 20 people interacting on my post. But because there are so few people, it lingers on the top, like the most viewed or the like top page in that network for a long time. So like the conversation, I, I found out when I found it, they like had already like found my Instagram. They were like trying to find... This is this is a rough subject, but they were like trying to see if they could find like nude images of me on some like leak dump using like reverse search on my face. Um, yeah, I mean, and a lot of times if they if they can't find an image like that, they can create a fake one, right? Yeah, they were like, it was ugh, it was uncomfortable. But like by the time I found it, the post had been up and they were actively talking about different things and saying different things for like a week. And then it continued for a week after that before it kind of like sunk to like the third page of the network. And so that all that is to say that it's not like Hacker News or Reddit where something is on the top page for like a day and people, there's like active conversation about it for a small amount of time and then it dies away. On those sites, it was like two weeks of just people saying, ignorant and offensive and hurtful stuff yeah that's that's terrible did they did they stay within that site or did they seek you out to tell you terrible things in on other places oh i got like one email and one dm um but it was mostly within that site like i this was the first time that this happened to me so i didn't know how serious i should take it it still felt super uncomfortable to like see that people were going through, for example, my Instagram and taking screenshots and making comments about it and like very saying very explicit things about photographs of me and like what they wanted to do to me and stuff like that. And that really scared me. So even though I received like very few direct messages um, and most of it was like them joking around in like their own network, joking I put in quotes because I guess the scary thing is you never know how serious these people are. Like, you know, um, yeah. Thankfully, I think it like died down. And now I'm just like very careful about <laughs> everything I post on social media. Um, like, for example, I didn't realize that my LinkedIn was up. And you can like find out a lot of per about a person from their LinkedIn. Like you can, it, there's a ton of information on there. And also I found out that, you know, I had in one of my previous startups that I had, I had it registered as a like sole proprietorship to get like a business, a pseudo business registration for it. And I had my home address associated with it. And it was the kind of thing where you could, if you knew the business name, which was on my LinkedIn, you could like look it up on my county's search system and get the address that I lived at in the past. So it wasn't my current address, but it was the kind of thing where I had a prior address that I lived in public on the web that somebody could find by looking yeah. at my LinkedIn and just like cross-referencing roughly what they knew about me and where I lived. Yeah, that kind of thing is so scary. There's so much stuff that's public just by default. 
And that's yeah. just the, kind of how we live our lives now. And we're yeah. a lot of it's willing. Some of it's unknowing, like the business thing. Or if you register a, a web domain and you don't know about who is privacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And after that whole incident happened, I started to like just get very cautious into like scrubbing my online details. I was like, okay, what do I have registered that's associated with my home address? How can people potentially find out my phone number, my zip code? Anything where it like gets them close to finding where I live and like being able to execute actual harm on me. So yeah, protect protect yourself. Get your OPSEC up on point. I mean, you never know who's going to like decide to, ugh, ugh, yeah. Yeah, so I know there's no perfect answer for how to deal with this kind of thing, but do you have any advice on how to deal with this kind of thing? Honestly, I... I'm kind of, I might be just a bit of a sadist or I just like enjoy inflicting harm on myself. But at some point, I just have to learn to laugh at it. That's really terrifying. And the only way that I could like cope with it was by turning it into a joke. And to be honest, I didn't have anyone who I could like talk to about it. Like, it's kind of a hard thing to explain to people. And I think it's something that very few people have experienced. And, you know, there are people who have, experienced online harassment and bullying to far extremer extents than I have. So I just felt like, I don't know what to talk to about this. I don't know if anyone will get that I like wrote a blog post and it got shared on Hacker News and Hacker News is this site that some bad people visit and one of them posted it on 8chan and that's even a worse site and it started this whole thing. Um, so I just had to like start laughing at it. I'd like read some of the things they'd say and I'd be like, wow, I did not hear about that derogatory term for African people before. I will add that to my dictionary now. Um, or <laughs> I start like proofreading the threats they're writing. Like, you, you know, you really ought to have a comma in there if you want to, you know, be intellectual while you're threatening to, to harm me. So just, I guess it's just like learning to laugh at it. And that's generally how I deal with anything in terrible in my life as I try to turn it into some sort of joke or comedy, no matter how dark it is. Your mileage may vary on how to deal with it. It kind of reminds me of a book that I like called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it doesn't have any answers. There's no real conclusion, but it just shares a whole bunch of stories who, of people who were publicly shamed on the internet. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I'm at this very weird point in my career, I don't know, my internet personality, where I have like a fair amount of Twitter followers. It's I'm like routinely surprised that so many people are interested in what I have to say. And like occasionally I'll check and most of them aren't like fake accounts, which is even weirder. They they are not fake they accounts? Are, they are not fake accounts. And like 99.9% okay, yeah, yeah. of the accounts that follow me are real. So it's like, sometimes it's like a very hard thing to process. It's like, I'm very sarcastic and my sense of humor sometimes doesn't translate well to people. And I can be kind of snarky and brutal and succinct sometimes. In addition to like being witty and funny at times. I think the hard thing about writing when you have such a huge platform is a lot of the people reading don't know me personally. So for example, that blog post that went viral, if you read my blog posts, I like write them in a very natural tone. They're like very personable. And I'll like say a lot of Sophiaisms and just like 
little parts of speech that are like very unique to my personality and the blog post can be kind of self-deprecating and tongue-in-cheek at times and that style of or that tone of writing doesn't translate well to people who don't know me so when they read it they take a self-deprecating comment literally or they take something that I said tongue-in-cheek or what was in my opinion like a comedic tone or something that I said in the context of an extended joke that I've been presenting on my blog they take that seriously yeah yeah and so I think this is like something that I've started to take into account as part of my effort to be a better writer was how do you maintain like tone and identity in your writing and personality but also realize that when people come and read your work somebody might be getting like a single fragment of who you are like how do you present yourself completely in a single piece of writing and do that well Um, because you know if you've like read all 30 blog posts on my blog you have a pretty good sense of when I'm telling a joke or when I make a comment that's obviously intended in jest or you know I'm not actually saying that oh I can't read any C code I'm just a silly JavaScript developer because I'm not I've written a lot of C code that's kind of the joke so like things like that that are kind of inside jokes don't necessarily scale up when you're a writer um and they're like a big part of how I make my writing personable is inside jokes to people who've been longtime readers so I've had to kind of like adjust my perspective on that and you know it was like that whole incident with the blog post going viral it was it was like the first thing that truly made it big on my blog I think like 11,000 people have read it wow yeah, nice. which, is, which is a lot, yeah. So it's like, you know, how do you write something that, you know, like every all 11,000 of those people are going to interpret it in different ways, but how do you make sure that as much as possible people get the same point out of it? It's like a very tough writing challenge, and I'm excited that, you know, that post going quote-unquote viral has given me the chance to kind of think about that writing challenge and develop my writing voice in that way. Yeah, yeah. So where can people find you online? They want to follow you. Oh, so many places on the internet. Um, I'm Captain Safia on every social network, which as I learned recently is not a good strategy for OPSEC. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm Captain Safia everywhere on the internet. Um, that's GitHub and Twitter and slides. Um, if I have an online identity somewhere, it's probably under Captain Safia. I do most of like my public tech writing on my blog, which is blog.safia.rocks. And I tweet things out on my Twitter, which is Captain Safia. Yeah, that's pretty much where I exist on the internet. I've got a homepage, which is safia.rocks, R-O-C-K-S, which is the best $11 I've spent for a top-level domain ever. Um, yes. Um, so, and that just has like my email and links to all my different profiles and stuff like that. So that's me on the internet. And you can listen to more of us talking on Book Bites podcast. And uh, if you want to follow this show on Twitter, it's at Web of Tomorrow FM. Book Bites is at Book Bites FM. And I'm at Agarhar. I don't know. It sounds like a pirate laughing or something. <laughs> it does. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me.